You would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 10. Hebrews, chapter number 10. I see there are a lot of people who are anxious to get out of their icy homes this morning. We made the call on Thursday that we would go to one service at 11 o'clock in the hopes that things would thaw a bit. You've experienced the rhythms of the last few days. You get this mid-morning thaw that lasts until the sun sets again and then, then things slick over once more. It would be okay if you would not drive like you had lost your mind on the ice, by the way. And uh, so we made the call on Thursday. Things were still pretty icy. Things were still pretty slick. And, uh, and then I went to Walmart and I was standing in the self-checkout line somewhere along the bread aisle and I thought, we may have a lot of people in one service on Sunday morning, and sure enough, here we are. I've said to you before, the Lord always, in sometimes strange ways, provides me with the opportunity to live with the passage. I can almost forecast what the week is going to hold on the basis of what the passage itself is teaching in principle. Our passage this morning, among other things, says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. What a week to be considering that principle uh, when most churches were forced into closing or limit services in some way, shape, form, or fashion. It just was beyond me to think about our not having worship services on a week when the teaching text was, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So here we go this morning. We're talking specifically about the spiritual discipline of worship. I think to talk of worship in that way is, is probably challenging in some minds because we, we tend to isolate devotion from discipline. There's this want, this thought that we, we have to want in order to have any level of meaningful involvement, like the heart has to be in it. And anything short of that is regarded as hypocritical in some shape, form, or fashion. And listen, we, we should have our hearts in worship. We should be affectionate in our devotional times. I'm not suggesting that at all. But this manifests itself in some weird sort of ways. Like, I've had this conversation in ministry a number of times through the years. Someone would say to me, you know, I was going to come to a worship service, Pastor, but I didn't want to. And I figured if I didn't want to and I did, that would be hypocritical. So I didn't. Like, and that doesn't come from a place of looking for a cop-out or some kind of excuse, right? We, we've... We've given such emphasis and we have such concern for being hypocritical in any way, shape, form, or fashion that it, it tends to influence every area of our life. One of the things that I want to press at in this early year series on spiritual disciplines is that devotion and discipline are not in conflict. That often good discipline will result in heartfelt, affectionate devotion. I tend to think in my personal life that the things that I don't want to do count for more than the, than the things that I might be earnest about doing, right? Like it's on the day when you don't want to eat right, it's on the day when you don't want to work out, those days count more in my mind than the days when you do want to do what needs to be done. 
You just continue to stack those days, walking with Jesus, devoting yourself to prayer, to the study of the scripture, the sharing of the gospel, to heartfelt expressions of worship, even when superficially you may not be in it at the moment, you know that he is good and faithful and just and deserving of all praise. I want to press that worship as a discipline and the notion that discipline and devotion are not in competition or in conflict with one another. Now, there are two basic ways that we express ourselves in worship. There is that private, individual, devotional worship you may experience in the prayer closet, in the deer stand, on the water, looking at a picturesque landscape, in a quiet moment, getting the kids ready for school. You you can experience these moments of worship continually. And then there is the corporate worship of the church where we gather together in this way. Both of those are irreplaceable and foundational to our life as followers of Jesus Christ. The passage that we're reading together just happens to address both the personal, individual expressions of worship as well as the corporate gathering of the church. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. If you found your way there, join me in standing as we read the word of God together. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 19. The Bible says here, Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. If you would, just think of worship along the same lines as you might think of prayer as a discipline for just a moment. We looked at, a couple of weeks ago, a a method for prayer that Jesus sets forth in Luke 11 and verse 2. Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus says, Pray in this way. Whenever you pray, pray like this. Father, your name be hallowed and and honored in all the earth. Give us daily bread. Guard us from temptation. Forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. May your kingdom come. We, We looked at something of a rhythm to prayer. The idea is that there are times in the day when we clasp our hands and we close our eyes and we bow our heads and hearts before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and we pray in that formal way that we most often think of prayer. And then we have exhortations in the New Testament that say things like this, pray without ceasing. The idea is not that you're going to go through your day, heads bowed, eyes closed, hands clasped, knees bowed, praying continually 24 hours a day. 
The idea is that coming forth from the prayer closet, coming forth from that formal time of fellowship with God in prayer, hands clasped and eyes closed, that we leave that place, we leave that moment in a spirit of prayer that carries us throughout the course of our day. So that in those less formal ways, we're able perhaps to mutter a quiet prayer and to ask that at this moment, with eyes wide open and actively engaged in the business of life, God would be with us, walking with us, guiding us, leading us to make decisions that would honor and glorify him, opening doors that we might share the message of the gospel, sensitizing our hearts to the work of his Holy Spirit. Worship works in a very similar way. We are charged in this very passage that we would gather ourselves together corporately just as we are this morning, that we might worship him in spirit and in truth. The note is made for us not just here, but in other passages in the New Testament, that something special happens when the people of God gather together in this way to worship him in spirit and in truth. There is something to be said of the coupling of the spirit of God that lives within you and the spirit of God that lives within me and our collective voices raised to heaven, celebrating the God who is, who was, and who is to come, who is worthy of all worship and praise. What happens when the church of Jesus Christ meets together cannot be replicated elsewhere. I've often used the language, and I'll always note with reverence, something magical happens when the people of God gather together for worship. And what happens aids us in leaving this corporate, formal, official gathering of the body of Christ in a worshipful spirit, with worshipful hearts, with a mind set on worship that functions to carry us through the course of this week that we might worship without ceasing. Not in the corporate gathering of the church. Maybe it's windshield time between here and work. Maybe it's a quiet moment that we manage to steal away in a hectic week. Maybe it's huddled in our homes for four or five days because there's an inch of ice on the road. Who knows the circumstances that might contribute to our ability or our heart being moved to worship in a single moment? That kind of heart posture, that kind of worshipful spirit is fostered in settings like this. And I would add that there's a, a sort of a circular rhythm about this thing. The kind of heart posture that that enables us to lift our voices and to celebrate the goodness of God with sincerity is fostered in those quiet, personal, private moments of celebrating the goodness and the faithfulness of God toward us, even in the absence of the corporately gathered church. I think both of these two expressions of worship are addressed in our passage. Verse 19 says again, therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he has opened for us through the curtain, which is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a heart full with assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Now, it's difficult for us this morning to appreciate 
the full measure of what's being expressed in these verses in the absence of an extended study of Hebrews 1 through 10, 18. But over the course of several chapters, the author of Hebrews has been building the case for the superiority of Jesus over all things. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible because it's just focused on Jesus. In the first three verses of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, Jesus is said to be a better revelation of God. He's said to be better than the Old Testament. You can know about the character and the attributes of God in the reading of the Old Testament, but if you really want to know what God is like, look longingly into the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. The following passage in Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is said to be better than the angels. You may be fixated on or fascinated with spiritual things, but if you want to know the depth of all things spiritual, look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ. By the time we come to Hebrews chapter 3, Jesus is said to be better than Moses. Yes, better than Moses. Now that, that may not be striking to you. But for a Jew in the first century to say that anyone or anything is better than Moses is quite a claim. In fact, he says Moses was faithful in the house, but Jesus built the house. Not only is he said to be better than Moses, in Hebrews chapter 4, he's said to be better than Joshua. Joshua labored to bring the people of God into a place of rest, but that was but a partial rest. Therefore, the Bible says there remains for us the promise of rest. One day, the better, the new and better Joshua will bring us over the Jordan to a land that has been completely conquered, rid of all sin and sickness and disease. Every enemy has been dashed. A land that flows with milk and honey awaits you and me just across that river. Jesus is better than Joshua. And as you move further in the book of Hebrews, we find that not only is Jesus better again and again and again, but Jesus, by the shedding of his blood, has established for us a new and better covenant. Under the old covenant, there was this priestly system whereby the one high priest would go in at an appointed time and make what was a foreshadowing sacrifice on behalf of the people and then quickly scurry away from the Holy of Holies. But what Jesus has done by far exceeds this foreshadowing work of the former high priestly system. In fact, if you back up to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 11, the Bible says every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God and is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified why in the world 
Should we heed the command of Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Why should we draw near to Jesus in those quiet, personal, tender moments of worship, even in isolation from the corporate gathering of the body? Why draw near? Dear friend, because you can. And we can because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The world has become his sanctuary. No more is the manifest presence of God bound to the Holy of Holies or a temple or a promised land. I even take a little issue. We went back some months ago now in September before everything exploded in Israel to Israel. I have a little bit of a beef with modern-day references to Israel as the Holy Land because the function of the New Covenant and the work of Jesus is to sanctify and set apart all the world for the worship of the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. This, dear friend, is holy ground because of the work of Jesus Christ. That on the other side of the world, in a place that was unknown in the days of Jesus, no biblical writer could have ever envisioned that there was a Western Hemisphere. And yet we're able this morning by the blood of Jesus Christ in this obscure corner of the world, in Hernando, Mississippi, in DeSoto County. We don't even tell people we're from Hernando. If you go out of state and someone asks where you're from, you say, I'm from Memphis. Because people know where Memphis is. And yet here, in our little corner of the world, on the edge of McInvale and Bahalia, we are able to gather in your homes, in the quietness of your prayer closet on windshield time tomorrow morning you're able to worship in spirit and in truth because of what Jesus has done in the new covenant why would we draw near because we can because we get to because he is worthy of all worship and praise this is the worship without ceasing portion of our passage because we have a great high priest we can draw near without respect to location time date or ceremony we can worship in this way we talk in terms of worship music and worship services and the way we use language sometimes has the effect at least mentally of relegating worship to the things that we do when we gather in this way. It relegates worship to Sunday. And what I'm saying to you this morning is that worship is not something that we do periodically or according to liturgical calendars. Worship is what we do when we inhale and we exhale and we abide in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whether you're eating or drinking or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. Paul explains in the same letter in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, don't you yourselves know that you are God's sanctuary and that the Spirit of God lives in you? Sometimes we use personal, private worship as a cop-out for disengagement with the local church. And for that reason, we can be dismissive of personal, private worship. I'm a hunter. 
I love the outdoors. I like to be outside. The only thing that cold, wa- that cold weather is good for is hunting. That's it. Like other than that, you can have it. I'm out on all of it. You can have the snow and the ice and all that. Send me a picture from a snow-capped mountain. I'll be well satisfied in my 80 and 90 degree weather lying by the pool. I'm good with that. That's where I want to be. That's me. But I, 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 because of that, you sort of find yourself in that circle at times, engaged in conversation with other men who enjoy the outdoors, and, and often men who will talk in terms of their experiences in the outdoors as a replacement for their being gathered together with the local body. Well, again, you can't replicate what God does when the people of God get together to worship him in spirit and in truth. But that should, on the converse, should not create this dismissal of real, meaningful worship that might happen in the outdoors or going about whatever your hobby or interest or activity of interest might be. There, there are times when I find myself in the outdoors struck by the beauty of the landscape. I, I, there are all kinds of hunting opportunities that I'll avail myself of, but, but turkey hunting is like a holy season in, in our house. There's something about that time of the year and the woods wake up and everything is beginning to green up again. It's just a beautiful, beautiful time of the year. It's just absolutely beautiful. And you can be moved at daybreak to worship as the birds begin to chirp and leaves are greening up. And just the scenery itself can move you to worship. I enjoy seeing that. I'm moved in those kinds of ways. Sometimes it's just a kid running across the living room and the reminders of the ways that we've prayed for that child and what God did to deliver them to us or the ways that God has directed their path. Sometimes it's the little stuff that so turns my affections to worship him for who he is. The, the subtle reminders of the deservedness of Jesus, of all the worship and praise I could ever hope to muster. Sometimes it's running into a relative or an old friend and observing the course of their life. Maybe it's a glorious outcome and there's a moment of celebration that God has intervened in some powerful way. Sometimes it's a disastrous outcome, and it's a reminder to me that but for the grace of God, so go I. And gratitude that God has moved in sovereign and gracious ways, and my life begins to well up in my heart. The reminders of God's intervention, the way it used to be for me, and the way it is now by the grace of God. Those are sweet and tender moments of worship that we ought to lean into at every opportunity. Not only does the Bible say here that we ought to draw near with a true heart, it says we draw near in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. There's reference here, by the way, to the experience of salvation and the experience of baptism. By faith, we come under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ceremonially, publicly, we identify with Christ through the experience of baptism. The Bible goes on to say in verse 23, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
The practical theme of the book of Hebrews is, is in effect, don't quit, don't give up. Hebrews is written to a largely Jewish Christian audience who are being pressured by their cultural experience and very real persecution to revert back to their former ways of life. Everything that they'd known, their calendar, their family celebrations, their holiday get-togethers had all been fundamentally changed by their expressing faith in Jesus. And now there is this persistent pressure that they revert back to that former, more familiar, and frankly, more comfortable way of life. But the Bible says here, hold fast. Don't give up. Know that Jesus is holding fast to you. Resist the temptation to let your circumstances shape your ability to worship. Don't be unduly influenced by the things that happen around you. Don't let a frowning countenance prevent you from expressing yourself in worship. Be faithful to sing his praise. And often what happens is the heart turns behind our investment of time and energy in the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what will happen if you wake up, if we could just take the corporate gathering as the example. If you get up on a Sunday morning and you're just mad, I think probably everyone experiences those days when you just wake up and that day you just decide that you want to be ill. That's what my wife calls it, ill. Are you ill today? Are you mad today? And Satan works in such crafty ways on Sunday morning. I have said this a thousand times. One of, one of the great gifts of being a pastor is that I leave for 20 years, I have left the house long before anyone woke up on a Sunday morning. Whatever the devil is doing at my address, he is doing without me there. And sometimes they get here happily, and sometimes they get here angrily, but they get here by themselves. You experience this. What, what will happen if, if that is the condition of your heart on a given Lord's Day, and you just persist in coming, can't find the kid's shoes, nobody's socks match, your shirt is wrinkled, and your hair doesn't look great today. What will happen if you come under those circumstances and you give your attention to the worship of Jesus Christ and you just begin to sing and you just begin, even in the absence of real, the kind of moving affection that I know you're so often looking for in the gathering of the church, what will happen as you begin to express the deservedness of Jesus to receive all your worship? In due time, your heart will begin to follow in after the confession of your mouth. And you'll find yourself moved in meaningful ways. Again, discipline and devotion are not in competition. There, there, is, there is this thing in American Christianity where people talk about worship as though it always has to be this effusive explosion of emotion and affection. Like if people cry, that's like the sign, right? And I, like, I, just don't, I just don't get it. It's not reflected in the Bible. The notion that worship is going to be this fun, concert-like experience where we're all moved in the way that one might be moved by some song on the radio. That ought not be the source of the stirring of our affections. 
What moves us is the goodness of God toward us and the remembrance of what he's done in our life. Your circumstances don't change that. Now, your mood, your mood may dictate the extent to which you are moved by a song on the radio, something from the top 40. They don't do that anymore, I don't think, but they used to, right? But our circumstances don't dictate to us the deservedness of Jesus to receive all our worship and praise. And regardless of what happens in your life today or what happened in your life yesterday, it cannot negate what God has done in your life a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, or 20 years ago. Our circumstances don't dictate to us the extent to which we can express ourselves in worship and gratitude. He is deserving of all worship and praise. Draw near and hold fast, the Bible says. Then verse 24 says, and let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. Not staying away. Interestingly, the language is much more severe than what's expressed here. It says, don't abandon your worship meetings, as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not abandoning or staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's something interesting about this passage that I'm not completely certain I have mastered. I've investigated it. I still haven't put all the pieces together. It's, it's only implied, but it's never explained in our passage. Somehow, what is described here of the worship meeting or the corporate gathering of the church, your presence has value for someone else. I'm not entirely sure how that works. Again, I've investigated it, but I've certainly not mastered it. Now, this idea flies in the face of most of the American worship experience. If I had a nickel for every time someone came to me and they shared of their experience in a church service someone, somewhere else where they said, I'm just not getting anything out of it, I would be a wealthy, wealthy man. Now, there ought to be the expectation that our souls are nourished by the preaching of the word. There ought to be the expectation that there is gospel substance in the sermon as well as in the songs that there is real effort on the part of the body to come under the authority of God's word, that we would surrender ourselves individually and collectively to the mind and the will of God in the reading and teaching of of his word. That, That is a reasonable expectation, and I'm not pushing back against that in any way, shape, form, or fashion. But I do want you to know that your gathering in this way, on this day, and any other day for that matter, is not exclusive to your personal benefit. In fact, the Bible says here, we're to be concerned about other people and therefore not habitually neglect the assembling of ourselves together. 
allowed that others within the, within the body could avail themselves of the remarkable benefit of the Spirit of God in you, being joined together with the Spirit of God in others within the body, in this moment of corporate worship and celebrating what God has done in us. Let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. Our gathering in this way is, as I said reverently earlier, magical in the sense that we are worshiping the God of heaven and that something about our gathering this way serves to encourage us in love and good works. It promotes love and good works in us. There's something necessary about our worship of Jesus that fuels our capacity for faithful obedience to him. Don't stay away. Don't abandon, as some do, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. There are these references to the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, Almost everywhere, the corporate gathering of the church is addressed or talked about. And I'll use a big word here. When the church gathers to worship, it is an eschatological event. We are meeting in anticipation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. When all things are made new. When we no longer worship in in this way that is veiled by time and distance and our own inability, when we are worshiping in the physical, immediate presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, gathered together and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author of Hebrews here sees the gathering of the church, our expressing ourselves in worship as preparatory. This is training ground for what awaits us. This is our opportunity to tune our voices, to turn our hearts toward the worship of the one who deserves all worship and praise in anticipation of that great day when we gather ourselves around the throne of grace and we worship him without the kind of distance we feel or experience here this morning. But in his very presence, we will worship the king. The command itself generates the thought of what that will be like. Someone within our congregation was sharing with me just this past week. They, they fashioned themselves a, a visual learner, a visual person. And just the closing of their eyes and envisioning an experience before the Lord Jesus Christ, worshiping him in his very presence. On some level, that's what we're exhorted to do in the passage. To worship as though Jesus we're here because he is. The Bible promises that where we gather in this way, he is pleased to, to take up inhabitants in our midst, that where the people of God gather, he is there inhabiting the praise of his people, willfully surrendering to the authority of his word and the call to personal holiness. The glory of God is pleased to dwell among the holiness of his people. So our passage teaches us 
of the value of personal worship. And our passage teaches us of the value of the corporate body gathered together to worship him in spirit and in truth. I mentioned to you earlier that personal worship sets the heart for corporate worship and corporate worship sets the heart for personal worship in this circular way. I don't know about you, but throughout the course of the week, I find myself singing the songs that we sing when we gather together. I I can tell you what the the worship set for my personal worship is the next week. It is whatever the worship set was for the corporately gathered body the previous Sunday. Now, I always try to make it a point to sing such that people cannot hear me, and you should appreciate that. Those are the songs that I'm singing, the celebrations and the reminders of the goodness of God. Hasn't that been your experience as well? Don't don't you find your heart softened and sensitized and conditioned for worship through the gathering of the body? Don't you find yourself day by day by day reminded in your reading of the word, in your times of prayer, In the remembrance of those songs we sang last Sunday, don't you find yourself thereby stirred up to worship him from your very heart, whether you be at work, in the throes of a difficult situation, snowed in at home, at school, at play, under all sorts of circumstances, don't you find yourself helped in that way? And don't we come back on the next Lord's Day, exhausted from a laborious week, to pour ourselves out once more in Praise the overflow of our private devotional life, the reading of his word and those sweet and tender moments of fellowship that we've experienced in him. The warning of our passage is that the abandonment of corporate worship will almost always lead to a diminished devotional life, and a diminishing devotional life will always lead to a decreased interest in corporate worship. Worship devotedly and with discipline commit yourself not only to those formal times and seasons of worship set apart by the church or liturgical calendar or even the rhythms of life, but worship without ceasing because he alone is worthy. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we could gather this way on this day to worship you. You are deserving of all honor and praise. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. We thank you today, especially for the community of faith that is Longview Point Church, that we could see one another this way, that we could draw together and make much of you. Lord, inhabit the praises of your people. Be pleased to dwell among the holiness of a people sanctified by the blood of Jesus washed as white as snow in that crimson flow. Thank you for the new and better covenant that makes the ground upon which we stand a holy place. Lord, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.